Good morning, church. Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. When's the last time you've seen a mainstream movie, television show, or series, or even read a book where an obedient child is glorified? I tried to think through it, and I couldn't think of a single one. What's glorified is the disobedient jerk And the obedient kid is usually sort of the goober of the story. And I I point that out by way of reminding us that there is a cultural war on the family. And kids, whether you realize it or not, culture is trying to sell you a version of childhood, a version of being a teenager that runs directly against the Word of God. And thankfully, Scripture speaks to this. Like we've looked at over the last few weeks, Scripture's not silent on these issues. And once again, we see that Scripture is pushing against cultural norms. And so, in order to get a running start at what Paul's teaching us today, I want to quickly just reset the context to make sure how we understand how these verses fit in the whole of Ephesians. Uh, we've, we've gone over this a number of times, and as we're nearing the end of Ephesians, I hope this is like for those who have been here consistently, that this is really starting to lock in. Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 really lay out who God is and what He's done. Chapters 1 through 3 is all about our stunning and amazing calling to which we've been called as Christians. It's there that we were told that for those in Christ, we were chosen by God from before the foundation of the world. I mean, just let that sink in. It's amazing. We've been predestined to adoption as sons. We have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit to make sure that we make it to our eternal eternal inheritance. We've been told that we were dead spiritually, but God through Christ has made us alive. We've been saved by grace through faith. And in so doing, we're actually God's new creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And let me just say, If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ, what I just said is the most important thing I'm going to say to you all morning, right? There's nothing more important than this. Every single one of us are all born sinners and we've all engaged deeply in sin and in so doing, in so doing, we are under the wrath of God, deservedly so. And yet God in his grace sent his son Jesus Jesus came, lived the life that we could never live. He went to the cross and he bore the punishment that we could never bear. And so for any who trust in Christ completely, we can have our sins forgiven and be made right with God. And I would just plead with you, look to Jesus even this morning, sitting right here. 
When we come to Christ, Ephesians has been teaching us, our lives change. There are expectations of believers, and that's why when you get to chapter 4, you got the big therefore. Therefore, in light of all of that, this then is how you should live. Therefore, in light of the gospel, we're to work hard to maintain unity within the body. That's tied to what we're going to be looking at today. Unity in the family is tied to unity in the church. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 17, because of the gospel, we are to stop thinking and living like unbelievers. That's tied to what we're going to be looking at this morning. So much of how children think about life is so disconnected from Scripture and marching orders given directly from the world. We're to walk in love. You think that's connected? Absolutely. Love one another. It all starts in the home. This service, this this willingness to love, to have that as the context in which we walk, in which we do life. We're to walk as children of light. We are to watch carefully how we walk, how we live. We, We don't want to live as fools, but as wise. Paul said that the fool gets filled up with wine and is led astray by that. We want to be filled with the Spirit. Remember, he's drawing a comparison. We want to be filled with the Spirit so that the Spirit controls us. And when he does, there's expected results like singing to one another, to God, thanksgiving in everything, And then we're expected to live a certain way in our homes. In the last two Ephesians sermons, we saw that wives are called to submit to their own husbands in a like manner that the church submits to Christ. And we talked about how amazingly countercultural that is. Then we saw that the husband is called to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And again, so very countercultural. I mean, think about in Paul's day. Uh, In Paul's day, the husband would be expected to rule over his wife as property, and Paul's saying, no, no, no. You love her as Christ loved the church. It's countercultural in our day. Men are typically all about themselves, our own kingdom, our own comfort, our own hobbies, our own personal happiness and fulfillment, and Scripture's calling us to put her needs even above our own. Well, today Paul lays down more teaching that is indeed countercultural, more teaching that we must, must, must remember Scripture is our ultimate authority, and we must ask God to continue to renew our minds here, and it's the relationship of children to parents. And here I invite you to turn with me to chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to begin by rereading verses 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Paul starts with a very straightforward command. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. He follows this up by making it clear. This has always been the expectation of the people of God. He does this by pointing to the fifth of the Ten Commandments that you can find in Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5. And there you see that in that fifth commandment, we're commanded, honor your father and mother. And while there's some subtle nuances between honoring and obeying that I'll touch on in a little bit when we get to uh, thinking about the ch- your interaction with parents as you get older, 
all agree that Paul, looking to the Ten Commandments here, his main thrust is holding these up as parallel commands, pointing to the Ten Commandments to show this has always been the expectation among the people of God. Think about it. The obedient child honors his parents. The disobedient child dishonors his parents. So I want to take a moment and think about this idea of obedience, honor here. This is really important. And I think it could be helpful to start with a contrast. It's worth noting that Paul commands wives to submit to their husbands, but here he calls children to obey their parents. And while these words have some level of overlap in that they're both getting at authority structure, the the, the difference is instructive here. When we looked at the role of wives, we defined biblical submission as a willing placing oneself under the authority of another. We specified there this is not forced subjection. Submission doesn't mean that the husband just runs around and he barks orders in the house and the dutiful wife simply runs around and obeys without any question or conversation. That's not what submission means. You can go back and listen to that sermon. Wife's submission to the loving leadership of her husband often works itself out through lengthy conversations. Sometimes difficult conversations, right? As you might not immediately see eye to eye or, or you're dealing with something that has difficult ramifications for the family. And while at the end of the day, the husband will be held accountable for the direction of his family and must ultimately make the final decision, a good servant leader wants to hear from his wife. He wants to understand her thoughts, her concerns, even her fears. And in no way is the wife bucking up to authority by sharing those things. And this then is different than what Paul's commanding children. While wives are called to submit to their husband, children are commanded to obey their parents. And especially when we think about young children, this just does not take on the same look of what I just described in the interaction of a husband and wife. Kids, if your mom or dad, for example, tells you, go to your room, There's no 20-minute discussion as to the merit of that decision. You are simply to obey. There's no place for telling a young child to do something, and they say, I don't want to. And by the way, here's why I think I shouldn't have to. No place for that. There's certainly, parents, no place for making deals with your child. All right, little fella, if you'll obey, we'll get some ice cream. I mean, at the end of the day, you do that, you find that you are teaching disobedience with an ugly side dish of teaching manipulation. If the parent says, come on, little Johnny, it's time to leave your friend's house, it's time to turn off that movie, it's time to turn off the gaming device, the child is to say, okay, mom, and that's it. Don't throw a temper tantrum. There's not 10 minutes of begging and special pleading for another 30 minutes. Now, that's not to say that in young children, tantrums and special pleading aren't natural and don't happen. They most certainly are natural because the sin nature is natural, and so they most certainly will happen. It is simply to say that the family seeking to follow biblical principles laid out here, as well as the rest of the New Testament, will not put up with such disobedience and will discipline their children accordingly for the very purpose of teaching them 
authority structures. And Lord willing, eventually help them to see and understand the importance of not only obeying mom and dad, but far more important, obeying King Jesus. That said, a little qualification real quick is in order. In just a minute, I'm going to take a stab at defining children. But for now, it's worth saying, what I just said is that children get older and their responsibilities in the house increase. The discussion does change a little bit. And we'll get into that when we talk about provoking children to anger. Here, though, we just need to be clear that in the gospel-centered home, the spirit-filled home, mom and dad call the shots, not the kids. Mom and dad call the shots, and the children are called to obey. And here, like we saw with husbands and wives, the motivation for the behavior is vital. Notice Paul says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, in the Lord. Here we need to be clear, in the Lord is not modifying parents. It's not saying, children, obey your parents if they're in the Lord. Obey your parents if you think they're instructing you in ways that you think are in line with the Lord. No, it modifies the word obey. See, he's taking us back to verse 21, which I've been saying as we've been going through this, is the category heading for the whole thing. And there we saw that one of the expected results of being filled with the Spirit that he's continuing to build off of all the way through these household instructions is submitting one to the other, one category to the other, wives to husbands, children to parents, slaves to masters, and all of that's done in the fear of Christ, right? And this in the fear of Christ we've been saying, is our ultimate motivation. Remember, the wife submits to her husband first and foremost because she submits to Christ. It's in her reverence to Jesus. Husband loves his wife because he lives in right fear of the Lord. He has reverence for Christ that drives all he does. And so too with children, whether they've come to faith or not, the overall framework here is in the fear of Christ whether it's the parents or the kids. Kids, in your desire to honor Jesus, you're called to obey your parents. And this is important because the opposite is also true. Kids, listen close. Failure to obey your parents is a failure to obey Jesus. And consistent disobeying of parents is straight-up rebellion against Christ. As if to say, Jesus, I'm not okay with you because I'm not okay with the authority structure you've told me i got to live under. That's a dangerous place to be, kids. More on that later. For now, don't miss the straightforward, all-encompassing nature of this command. For with no qualifications, no softening, Paul plainly says, children, obey. I mean, this is another one of those that's just simple. It's so easy. It took me five minutes to diagram this passage in Greek and to work through sort of a discourse analysis. It's so simple. No interpretive challenges at all. And no conditions. It's simply children obey your parents. And we've been talking about this as we go through with all the God-given roles. Whether husbands and wives or children, none of these commands in the household instructions are conditional. Whereas the wife her call to submit to her husband is not conditioned on whether or not he's a great leader or she's, he's leading in a way that she thinks is great. And the husband's command to love his wife is not conditioned on whether you think she's lovable. And so too for kids, nowhere does this say or even imply a condition for you. It is not obey 
if you like what your parents are teaching you in the moment. It's not obey if you're currently positive towards your parents. It's not even, listen close, this will tie into later, it's not even obey if you think your parents are not provoking you to anger in the moment. It's just simple and straightforward. In fact, the parallel passage of Colossians 3, Paul even specifies obey in everything. That means, kids, your call to obey is a call to obey, not simply if you like what you're being told. Your call to obey is not even contingent, listen, on whether or not you understand what your parents are telling you in the moment. I mean, teens, teens, I'm talking to you. Humility, at the very least, should tell you that your parents are older than you. They've seen a lot more life than you've seen. They have wisdom, I promise you. They have wisdom you do not yet have. I don't care how book smart you are. And thus, when they tell you this is what you're to do, it's what you're to do. And by the way, kids, parents, we need to be clear on this too because we need to know what we're looking for in obedience. Kids, you are not obeying if you fuss about it when your mom and dad tell you what to do. You are not obeying if your mom says you need to go clean your room and you stomp up the stairs grumbling and complaining about the fact that you don't want to clean the room or even that you're mad about the timing of the chore. And you're certainly not obeying if you do the right things when they're watching and then do your own thing when they're not. I think a good definition of obeying your parents is to obey right away all the way, with a good attitude, and even when nobody's watching. Now, let's pause and consider a few important implications of this teaching. First, I've already touched on this one, but parents, teaching our kids to obey is a vital part of our role. Children do not come to us from God as Christians Just because they live in a Christian home, just because they're catechized, perhaps baptized, pasteurized, homogenized, whatever, they are not Christians until God opens their eyes to see their sin and shows them their need for a Savior and gives them life-changing, saving faith in Christ. That said, given that children have a sin nature, part and parcel of our teaching them about the sin nature and their need for a savior, which I'll come to in a moment, is teaching them what it looks like to obey. See, teaching our children to obey mom and dad is a small but vital step along the way in teaching our children what it means to obey God. We're teaching them authority structures. And as we've already seen, the Bible is replete with authority structures with the ultimate authority being God himself. Brothers and sisters, if we don't teach our children obedience when they're young, we end up teaching them by default that they are the final authority of their own lives, which is a frightening thing to consider as we're clear biblically that this would be pointing them right down the road to hell. So we must, we must teach them to obey. Second, parents should expect our children to 
to disobey. Let me say that again. Parents should expect our children to disobey. Now, at first pass, you might say, isn't that contrary to what you just said? But it's not. We must expect our children to disobey, but that in no way means that we give in to their disobedience. Proper expectations, though, actually protect us from getting angry in the moment or even discouraged as parents. We've said this before, but it certainly applies to parenting. Right expectations are vital for our own emotional stability. I mean, Christian parents, I got to be honest with you. There's no seven steps, turn the crank, and out pops perfect kids. It's far messier than that. Think about it this way. If a young mom expects her children to be little angels everywhere she goes, because after all, she and her husband are teaching all the right biblical principles, she's going to be embarrassed by them. She's probably going to get inappropriately angry with them. She's going to wonder what in the world is wrong with them, and probably what in the world's wrong with her because they don't obey all the time. I want to read a helpful quote from a book I think is probably the best biblical theology on the family. There's lots of how-to books, very few biblical theologies. This is God, Marriage, and Family by Andreas Kostenberger. It's actually a biblical theology of the family, and he has some good stuff to say along the lines of what I'm saying here. So it's a little lengthier quote, but hang with me. It's, It's useful. He says, fundamentally, children... Like all people ought to be considered spiritual individuals who are uniquely created by God and yet are fallen sinners, so that the task of parenting is not merely that of behavioral conditioning, but spiritual nurture and training. To use of one partic- the use of one particular methodology and exercise of external discipline has some value, but is limited in its usefulness. An engagement of the root cause of all unrighteous human behavior, sin, should be the goal. In reality, only those children and young people who experience personal regeneration through faith in Christ and receive the indwelling Holy Spirit can truly and permanently live a life pleasing to God and benefit as their parents grow them toward greater wisdom. This, however, does not do away with the need for parental discipline and training prior to the child's conversion. It does mean, though, that parental efforts can only go so far unless aided by the internal supernatural enablement in the response of the child. Thus, the child's conversion is truly an important aspect of parental guidance. This is getting into what I was just talking about. He says, for this reason also, parents ought not be surprised or shocked when their children disobey. Of course children will disobey. They're sinners. Parents rather should be expecting their children to sin even after they've come to faith in Christ, such an expectation is realistic and enables the parent to deal with each infraction calmly and deliberately, administering discipline with fairness, justice, and consistency. Whether or not they are believers yet, he has in parentheses, children need their parents to set and enforce standards for right or wrong behavior. This is how children learn to assume responsibility for their actions and come to realize that there are consequences for obedience as well as disobedience. Hence, the parent's role is both negative and positive, similar to the effect of Scripture in a person's life. They must teach and train their children in righteousness, but they must also discipline and correct, end quote. This leads to 
the next implication, which is teaching our children to obey helps them to see their need for a Savior. In Galatians 3, Paul says, the law is a tutor to bring us to Christ. Ted Tripp, not Paul Tripp, Ted Tripp, his brother, wrote an excellent book, Shepherding a Child's Heart. I commend it to you, though. Be careful when your kids are younger. When they're younger, it's sort of more basic black and white kind of stuff. But as they get older, as you're disciplining, it is a pointing them to the cross. As we're disciplining our children, we're reminding them of sin and the fact that we all sin. And yes, there are repercussions for our sin, but there's also forgiveness and ultimate forgiveness in Christ. And so each and every moment of discipline can be a moment of gospel proclamation with our kids. Number four, fourth implication, and this is an important one. It's tied to something we'll talk about later, but I'm going to throw it out there now because we're talking about children obeying their parents and everything. Children in a Christian home, and I don't think this is a problem in our church, but it is a big problem in the American church. Children in a Christian home do not have the freedom to say, I don't want to go to church. They're under your authority. They don't have that freedom. It's not an option. What's more, and again, I don't think this is a problem in this church, but it is rampant in the American church. Children do not dictate where you go to church. I don't care if they don't like the youth group. I don't. Listen close. Given the choice, they will choose 99 times out of 100 a church preaching heresy if it's got a rock climbing wall or some other awesome stuff to go do. They don't make those calls. Parents, dads, it's your call. You first and foremost find a church preaching the gospel, preaching the the word of God unvarnished, and you go there where they can be ministered to by the word of God. Moms and dads, make that call. Children, follow, period, full stop. Now, this does all raise an important issue that we need to consider, and that is how do we define children? This question's maybe not quite as easy as it seems at first pass. You sort of have to pull some biblical principles together because at the end of the day, think about it, every single one of us are the children of somebody else. My mom's probably watching the live feed. Hey, mom. Um, That being said, most of the adults in the room, hopefully, have ceased obeying mom and dad a long time ago. I just think about the biblical teaching of leaving and cleaving, right? It would make no sense if you're still obeying your parents. The, the husband can't lead his own family if he's still obeying mama, okay? Likewise, the wife can't obey her dad if she's submitting to her husband. And so these instances are pretty clear. Husband's no longer obeying his parents, but leading his own family under the guidance of Christ, and the wife is no longer obeying her parents, but submitting to her husband's lead as the two have become one flesh. Yes, this is that area where honoring is a little bit different. Yes, we still honor our parents, right? There's a, there's a, a kindness, a respect, a, a thankfulness we have for them, even if you don't think they're great parents. Your, your mom gave birth to you, Right? There's, there's, there's a respect that is due parents just for the fact that they are your parents. Biblically speaking, 
and this is not in vogue in the American church, one of the ways we honor our parents, and this is very clear in the Bible, is we take care of them as they get older, right? We live in a day and age where it's just like old people don't matter and, you know, let's just, you know, find them a place to go off and ride off into the sunset. But we want to think through what that looks like to honor mom and dad. Now, I could go off on a rabbit trail there. Go back to defining children. Who's Paul talking about in this passage? The, the, the Greek word technon, like the English word children, can mean a child of just about any age, so no word study is going to win the day here. In fact, they usually don't. I think Clinton Arnold's helpful in his commentary. He says this, quote, the children he speaks of are those who are still in the home. They are old enough to understand instructions from their parents and deliberate over whether they should obey or go their own way. They are still being brought up, receiving instruction and correction from their fathers, chapter 6, verse 4. And they have not gotten married and left home, chapter 531. This would most likely place the age range of the children from early elementary to the late teen years or early 20s. It is significant that Paul addresses the children directly and not through their parents. This is interesting. This implies that they are present when the community assembles to worship, to hear the reading of the word and receive teaching, end quote. God has placed fathers in authority over their home. This is seen even in the fact that wives are to submit to their own husbands. That being said, there is a passing of the baton at some point, given that a son will need the freedom to lead his own family, and a wife can't be yanked around between husband and father. So I think the short answer is that the child who is living in the home or is in some way dependent on his parents, financially or whatever, is still under his parents' authority. And thus, even these older children who are still dependent on their parents, be it for daily shelter or finances or whatever, are still to obey their parents. And if they don't like that, you know, and you've got to work through this with your own family, but if they don't like that, they can move out get a job, completely support themselves if they want to just jump all the way to there. And I'm thinking in terms sometimes of an older, unbelieving child. That being said, for parents of wayward, older children, and I'm thinking about the 25, 30-year-old still living at home or the rebellious child off at college, I think it's important that we point out that we must be careful here. For all too often, I think Christian parents inadvertently end up supporting ungodliness And in some way teaching them it's okay because we don't feel like we have any recourse and we just continue to fund their debauchery. And again, you've got to walk in wisdom, but you probably have more authority than you think. I talk to parents sometimes and they're like, they're 18, I've got no authority. It's like, no, you've got a lot more authority than you think. And you might need to have that hard conversation somewhere along the lines of, you cannot continue to rebel and live here. You cannot continue to rebel, and I just keep sending money so you can go to college. Right? A lot more we could say there. We got to keep going. Just keep in mind that we are teaching our children obedience so long as they're under our authority. We don't want to shortchange that. Now, I think there's an important qualification that we need to make. And that is, while children are to obey their parents, ultimate allegiance is always to Christ. 
Remember, all of this is done in the fear of Christ. We talked about this even in thinking about a, a wife submitting to her husband. So if, if a child comes to saving faith in Christ and his parents punt the faith, or a child comes to saving faith in an unbelieving household, that could present a struggle that wisdom is needed. Hopefully they'd have a local church to help them walk through that. But remember, Jesus told us, brother will deliver brother over to death. Father his child. Children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. See, there might be a time for a believing teenager to tell his unbelieving parents something along the lines of, mom, dad, I love you. And I'm gonna do my best to abide by your rules but I have to honor Christ. I will go to church. I will read my Bible. I'm also going to seek to be a son you'll be proud of, but if you make me choose, I choose Jesus, okay? We need to consider one more thing regarding children before we turn our attention to fathers, and that is we see in this text, obedience is tied to a glorious two-pronged promise. Look back at the text. Again, Paul ties the command to He ties the command for children to obey to the Ten Commandments. And there Paul says it's the first command with a promise. And if you were to go back and read the Ten Commandments, you might say, yeah, it's the first one, but it's also the only one. But I think that would be a misunderstanding because what he's getting at is the Ten Commandments are typically um, understood as sort of the category heading for all of the Mosaic Law. And as you work through the rest of the Mosaic Law, you see all sorts of promises and warnings that go from the commandments. Here the promise, again, is twofold. One, it's that things will go well for you. And two, you will live a long life. And so, kids, let me talk to you again. I want to ask you this question. How many of you would like things to go well for you? Right? Yeah, buddy, I see that hand. I'm with you. How many of you would want to live a long life? I trust we would all raise our hand. I I would like those two things to be true of me. Well, that being said, let me qualify just a bit because there's certainly a category for a sweet, Christ-loving, obedient child to walk through super hard times and even die early, whether car accident or cancer or something along those lines. But that does not negate this promise in the least. This is along the lines of a biblical proverb. It is speaking in generalities. It is a general principle that is generally true. And think about it like this. Again, kids, who likes being in trouble, Right? Seriously, do any of you like being disciplined? Like, yeah, let's do this, you know? Do any of you like long, drawn-out conversations where your parents are having to point out all the ways that you're disobeying? Things are not going well for you in those situations. And in fact, if you extrapolate that out, things will not be going well for you in a number of other situations as well if that kind of behavior continues. What's more, consider length of life. Consider how many have actually died young due to a lifestyle of disobedience that started in the home or a lifestyle of disobedience that started in the home because of an abdication of parental responsibility, right? Maybe it starts with disobeying parents or parents not even teaching obedience and then it leads to disobeying authorities, disobeying the cops, whatever. Leads to destruction of one's life, perhaps even premature death, all tied to this general realm of disobedience. So these promises 
for things going well and long life are real. They're real, and they should be taken seriously. What's more, I do need to point out that the flip side of this promise is a warning ultimately tied to where you stand before a holy God who is a God of structure, who is a God of authority. Kids, I'm speaking to you younger kids to get your attention, but I want to speak to my teens. I want to speak to my kids that are in youth group. If you constantly struggle with disobedience to your parents, if you constantly struggle with an attitude toward your parents, please, I'm begging you as your pastor, I'm pleading with you, do not pacify your own conscience with worldly reasons that disobedience is okay. Remember, we're called throughout this passage to think differently than the world thinks. The world's filling you with a bunch of lies. Biblically speaking, if you struggle with a lifestyle of disobedience towards your parents, this should cause you to have a real concern for the state of your own soul. And I'm just putting it out there bluntly. None of us perfectly obey. No wife hits it out of the park on submission all the time. No husband is always killing it in the realm of love. Nobody expects you kids to be obedient every second of the day. But listen close. If your lifestyle, think about it in terms of a video, if your lifestyle portrays a consistent attitude against your parents, a consistent disobedience, I would plead with you, let that cause you to look to Christ either for repentance or salvation. I mean, whether you're a believer or a rebellious Christian that needs to repent, the answer is the same, repent and believe the gospel. But take this seriously, take it seriously, kids. Okay, now to fathers. Look back at the text, verse 4. Told you we were going to be longer today. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Here Paul goes directly after fathers. The first three verses, he's talking to parents. Here he goes after fathers and dads. He's admonishing us not to lead our homes in a harsh, heavy-handed manner. Yes, we're to teach our children to obey, but not by brute force. And we have to understand that the interactions change as the kids get older. But before we lean in on that, let me address the moms. Some have pointed out that the word fathers used here is also used, for example, in Hebrews 11.23 when it says, By faith, Moses, fathers, which wouldn't make sense, hit him for months after he was born. And so you take that as parents. And thus some argue that Paul's admonition here in Ephesians 6 is a command both to moms and dads. And while I do think, I absolutely think there's application, much of what I'm going to say for the moms, because moms you can provoke too. Moms, some of you emasculate teenage boys, okay? While I do think that there is application for moms, Paul is placing a special emphasis on the fathers, as seen elsewhere in the New Testament, 
And given here that he's laying out authority structures. We've already seen the husband is the head of his house, even as the wife is called to submit to his lead. What's more, he's already used the term parents, so he could have used it again. He used parents dealing with who the children are to obey. They're to obey both. But here he switches to dads in verse 4. So again, I do think there's application to moms. But dads, Paul's zeroing in on us. And he commands us here not to provoke our kids. The word Paul uses that's translated provoke is defined in the standard Greek lexicon, so like the best Greek dictionary you can find. It's translated this way, to cause someone to react in a way that suggests acceptance to a challenge. Let me say that again. This is the definition of provoke. To cause someone to react in a way that suggests acceptance to a challenge. So, for instance, in the positive, in 2 Corinthians 9, 2, Paul says that the Corinthians' zeal to give financially to the church in Jerusalem provoked Macedonia to rise to the challenge and also to give generously, okay? Here in Ephesians, he's using it in the negative sense of provoking. In other words, he's going after demanding obedience in such a way that provokes that child to say, oh yeah, I'll rise to the challenge. I'll buck up to that. And so just think about this one personally. Just kind of think about your own experience. Someone can ask of you the same thing and get a different result in your heart by the way they ask, can't they? You know that's true, right? Someone can come to you and say something that's really hard. But if they do it kindly, even if that kindness is coupled with firmness, even if that kindness is coupled with clarity on authority, it's your boss and he could fire you. So it's not just an authority thing. But if they're kind, if they're loving, if you can tell they care for you in what they're telling you, They're doing what they're doing, not just because they're angry that you got in their way again. When that's the case, you're more inclined to listen, to obey, aren't you? But if they're just harsh about it, if they do it with an attitude, if they do it in such a way that you might think, well, you know, they just don't like me. They're just mad that I'm causing them to have to be a parent. You might be inclined to think, oh, yeah? I'll show you. I'm your huckleberry. I'll go toe-to-toe here. I appreciate Clinton Arnold in his commentary. He says this, quote, fathers should, be very, fathers should carefully weigh the potential impact of their words and actions before responding to their children. This passage effectively rules out, and this list is so good, this passage effectively rules out reactionary flare-ups. We don't want a parent with reactionary flare-ups. Overly harsh words. Dads, we don't want to be harsh with our kids. Insults. No insults. Sarcasm. Aren't you great? Nagging. Don't nag our kids. Demeaning comments. Inappropriate teasing. Unreasonable demands and anything else that can be perceived as provocative, end quote. I think it's instructive that in the parallel passage in Colossians, Paul says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. 
This is an important warning to dads. It is certainly possible to create an atmosphere where at the end of the day, our children simply become discouraged under our tutelage. Again, I like what Kostenberger says here. He says, quote, children are persons with dignity in their own right. They are not slaves owned by their parents, but are entrusted to them by God as a sacred stewardship. In the Colossians passage, Paul notes that as a result of improper treatment, children may become discouraged. Indeed, few things are more heartbreaking than a child who has lost heart because of poor parenting, end quote. See, this is where we got to keep all of Paul's teaching here together, and it's one of the weaknesses of expository preaching because we're breaking it up in sections, but this flows from chapter 4. Remember there, Paul exhorts us not to be angry. Remember that garrison? You're setting up a stronghold in your backyard for the devil. If you just walk around angry, we're to to put that off. Parents, we're 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 to put off bitterness. Yes, parents, you can get bitter towards your children, but you gotta put it off. We put off wrath. We put off clamor, which we defined as yelling. But instead, he says, be kind to one another. Man, our first one another's are in our home. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Your kids need a heart of compassion. You know, sometimes they're struggling, and we just get mad because they caused us to have to step up again. But they're struggling. You need to be compassionate. Forgiving one another. Every day, if you want a gospel-centered home, it must be a home founded on forgiveness. Your kids will sin against you a hundred times over. They're not going to rise up and call you blessed every single day and treat you perfectly and, and all of that. We must forgive, as Paul says, because God in Christ has forgiven you. When we covered chapter four, we said that all these virtues are things that we see in God's actions toward us. And so, man, we want to let the actions of our loving Heavenly Father guide us as we try to be good fathers to our children. We must strike the balance between proper discipline and compassionate hearts. We must discipline, yes, but there must be patience and kindness and gentleness in our discipline of our children. Otherwise, our kids could come to the point where they feel like it doesn't matter what they do. They'll never please us. And to be honest, that's a pretty sorry place to grow up. Don't miss how essentially gospel-centered parenting is. Think about it. God is glorified when people come to believe in his son and worship him. So, So God is glorified when our kids come to saving faith. Of course, we know we can't save our children. At least we better know that. Right? You, you can lead them in a sinner's prayer, but you've not saved them in so doing. You've probably just confused them because, again, salvation is of the Lord entirely. He changes the hearts. He gives us new eyes with which to view ourselves and see our need for a Savior. And he renews our will so that we actually can love him and live for him. So that's all of God. We can't do that kind of heart surgery on our children. But... God always works through human instrumentality. We see that all over the scripture. The normal means by which someone is saved is by somebody else proclaiming the gospel and being around the means of grace. And thus parents are vital in the salvation of our children. 
even though we don't save them. Since God uses means and we're around them more than anybody else unless we're abdicating our role, God uses us. And therefore, parents, specifically dads, I find Paul's words arresting here. We should let this warning sink in and we should pray for one another here and we should hold one another accountable here because Paul is telling us harsh parents, harsh fathers, and I do think you can add here harsh mothers, discourage children. Harsh parents can provoke kids to say, oh yeah, to hell with you and your stupid religion. You talk about love, you talk about kindness, you talk about gentleness, you talk about joy, you're just a hypocrite. You're never kind, mom. You're never kind, dad. Your words and your actions are never gentle. And joy, you're just a big grump. Being around you is about as appealing as being around a hungry grizzly bear. All you do is focus on the negatives. Oh, church, may it not be doesn't have to be this way. The Christian home can and should be a wonderful place to grow up. For in finishing out this admonition, Paul exhorts fathers not to provoke their children, but instead to bring them up to nurture the word, to nurture them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. See, instead of provoking our children, instead of discouraging our children, we have the amazing opportunity to nurture our kids at the instruction of the Lord. We get to nurture them in the Bible and the discipline that comes with that. So as we think about our role, there's both instruction and discipline. We teach them the Scripture, and we hold them accountable to its teaching. When they sin, and remember, we should expect them to sin. When they sin, we must discipline them. And even in our discipline, we're still instructing In our discipline, we have the great opportunity to point them to the cross and listen close. When we sin, and we will, against them, we have the great opportunity to teach them that we too are sinners and that we too need the cross. See, our kids don't need parents parading around as perfect. They will see right through that. They know you way too well. They need to see that you're a failure and that you know it. And as hard as it might be, parents, specifically fathers, because I do think moms tend to be a little bit better about this, we must be willing to humble ourselves before our children when we blow it and say something like, son, daughter, I'm so sorry. I blew it earlier. I lost my temper and I sinned against you. I've already asked God for forgiveness and I trust that what Jesus did on the cross has has covered that, but I'm asking you to forgive me as well. See, I need the cross just like you do. God, that's so helpful in so many ways. Now that child understands it's not total screw-up kid against perfect dad. Now they see we're all in the same boat. We all need Jesus. Life in the spirit-filled home is essentially gospel-centered. Christian parenting must be gospel-centered. As Christians, we're on mission for Christ. We talk about that all the time. We want to be interacting with our coworkers and our neighbors and our friends and so on and so forth, but let us never forget that we are on mission every single day in our own home. 
None of our children were born Christians. They don't become Christians through osmosis. Yes, God is sovereign in the salvation of every single sinner. And yet, like we talked about, we believe that God uses human instrumentality. And no human will have a greater influence on your children than you. Which is why we choose the church to take them to. Because we want them in solid gospel proclaiming church, not something that just tickles their fancy. It's why we want to teach them the Bible. And what a privilege that is to teach them about Jesus. We instruct and we discipline. It's why we want to seek to model the gospel. We model living for Christ, which means we model failure and taking each and every failure to the cross where all of our sins are forgiven. And by the grace of God, perhaps he'll be kind and use our feeble, flawed efforts as one of his means in saving our kids and using them for his glory. So let's pray. Let's pray to that end for us as parents and certainly for all of the wonderful young children in our church. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. We are so needy for your word, Lord. We have so many things teaching us and pushing us in directions that run completely against what you have said. And yet, Lord, you have spoken, and you have spoken clear, and it was written, and it was once for all delivered to the saints. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would help us to not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. I pray that you would help us to be a church by your grace, living out the truths of Scripture. May we be gospel-centered people. May every single one of us, fathers, mothers, children, recognize none of us have it all together, and we all desperately need gospel. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your grace, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.